This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Um, now I'd like to introduce uh, Bo Strath, uh, Professor of European and World History at the University of Helsinki. Um, most recent uh, major publication, Political History of European Integration, The Hypocrisy of Democracy Through Markets. Um, next work will be Three Utopias of Peace, looking at uh, Vienna, Versailles, and the founding of the European Iron and Steel community, and he's going to talk on identity and social solidarity and ignored connections. But. Thank you very much for the introduction and thank you very much uh, Joseph and Ellie and John and John for the invitation. Uh, identity and social solidarity, an injured connection, uh, is the title of my talk and the subtitle is a historical perspective on the state of Europe and its nations. And the state of Europe, to avoid any misunderstanding, is of course in the sense of the American president's uh, annual uh, speech of the Union, state of the Union speech. Uh, the 19th century uh, nation building had both a civic and an ethnic dimension. Uh, the civic was about social inclusion uh, against the backdrop of observations of social inequalities and social disintegration in the wake of the spread of industrial capitalism and the emergence of wage work. The ethnic dimension was about exclusion, about the building of friend and enemy imaginings. Whether these two developments are seen in terms of identity or belonging uh, is, in my view, not the decisive question. These, uh, there, there is considerable overlap between them. The crucial question is to what extent they are essentialized or not. The problems begin with essentialization. However, I think that the risk of essentialization uh, is smaller with a civic version, since there is a scope for political contentions and interest clash, uh, an understanding of politics as pluralism and disagreement. The ethnic nationalism has more holistic claims and a sharper distinction between inclusion and exclusion. My argument is uh, that, at least in Europe, we are moving from civic towards ethnic formulations of belonging and from ideas of a civic uh, Europe of the nations towards ideas of ethnic nations in Europe. From a political process of Europeanization towards political processes of renationalization. The crucial question, the constant since the 19th century, is the social question, which in the 1950s and 1960s at the end became a core dimension of the citizenship and of civic definitions of the nations. This culmination of the social has since a few decades become reverted with obvious consequences for the question of belonging and for the question of inclusion and exclusion. 
My argument is that the identity and belonging debate has paid too little attention to the role of the social question. The fact that Bismarck, uh, for Bismarck warfare, uh, for national ethnic integration, went hand in hand with welfare for national social integration, has rather been seen as an exceptional case. Welfare came in the standard view with the social democrats. This is wrong. The, two, the social dimension of national unifications was more general than being just a German special case, and it was earlier than the social democrats. Bismarck's social legislation in the 1880s is well known. His old age pension, pension sickness and work accident insurances were the first in the world and became the model for other countries and the basis of modern welfare states. His attempt to appropriate the vocabulary about the social from the socialists and the communists meant that he in many respects came close to their agenda. And he even had occasional contacts with the social democratic leader Ferdinand Lassalle. But he was also keen to get rid of competition from them. Consequently, the organizations of the socialists were forbidden from 1878 until Bismarck's dismissal, uh, dismissal in 1990. Bismarck could build his social reforms on support. In 1873, a number of reform-oriented professors in political economy and sociology, like Gustav von Schmoller and Adolf Wagner, founded the Verein für Sozialpolitik, the Association for Social Politics. The political intention of the Association of Economists was fully focusing on the state. The task of the association was to become a forum in which academic, economic, and political administrative elites could communicate about necessary measures to be undertaken on the basis of social scientific research results. An urgent requirement was the establishment of a public debate about what was referred to as the social or the class question and how to solve it. State and society necessarily had to be activated in order to establish a balance between the social interest, um, interests drifting apart, drifting apart, the professors argued. Uh, this was a sine qua non for the welding of a German nation. It was not by chance that the Verein für Sozialpolitik was founded two years after the establishment of the Reich. Welfare for social integration was a follow-up instrument to warfare for, social, uh, for, for national integration. Despite all socialist reproaches from classical laissez-faire-oriented economists who refer to the members of the Association of Cathedral Socialisten, as Cathedral Socialisten, alluding to their academic chairs, a label which soon broke through in the public debate in Germany and abroad. The members of the association saw themselves in a mediating position between socialists and market apologetics. The association of social politics did not emerge in a void. There had been uh, ever since the 1830s, an intense European debate on what was referred to as the social issue or the social question. The spread of industrial capitalism 
and contract-based wage work from Britain to the continent brought not only growing capital concentration of a new kind, but also growing proletarianization of a new kind and scale. Property went hand in hand with poverty. The ruling classes translated their experiences of the revolutions uh, in Europe since 1789 into expectations of new threatening revolutions. The debate on the social issue was about how to confront that threat. The self-organization of the working classes under the idea of class struggle and socialism in the 1870s against the backdrop of an extended economic crisis gave the threat more dramatic proportions. The social issue became for the ruling elites the class question. The political efforts for social integration grew. This was the general European background of the German Cathedral Socialists. They were politically conservative or social liberal. They did not only have an external face towards the public, but also an internal academic. They all belonged to the so-called historical school, which had emerged in Germany in the early 19th century in conflict with the classical economists. The historical school rejected the assumptions of universal laws governing economic performance, the discovery of which the classical economics, economists saw as their task. The search for the universal economic and social laws had made classical economy blind for the growing social problems in the wake of industrial capitalism, uh, the historicists argued. The classicists never seriously addressed the social problems. The historicists argued that each country based its development on historically given norms customs, practices, and institutions. The same problem could be approached very differently from country to country, depending on the specific historical heritage. And the idea of a historical heritage provided a link from the social definition of belonging to an ethnic view. In France, the development was similar. Uh, in particular, in the versions uh, developed by Emile Durkheim in his work on the differences between mechanic solidarity of traditional societies and organic solidarity based on division of labor in modern societies. With this concept of solidarity and division of labor, he demonstrated the increasing interdependence instead of independence of individuals in industrial societies. Also in French political science, there was a movement away from the assumption of universal laws explaining economic and social behavior towards historically derived theories of, for state intervention. On this ground, the idea of solidarism emerged, the main interpreter of which was Léon Bourgeois, who was strongly influenced by Durkheim. Ever more protagonists found laissez-faire unacceptable and promoted reinforced state activity to mitigate the class clash. In Italy, the liberalisti among the political economists, persistent adherents of liberal theory and advocates of radical free trade, lost ground to the statalisti. The statalisti incorporated in the status of their association a list of political measures to be promoted by their association. The statalisti took in the 1870s over the debate from the liberal economists. 
Also in Sweden, the development was similar. The influence of the German Cathedral Socialists was obvious in political, economics, and social sciences. In the years around 1900, conservative political science professor Rudolf Schelen suggested national socialism as an alternative to class struggle socialism. The nation had to be organized as a home of the people, a folk hem, uh, like Bismarck in Germany a couple of decades before, Schelen aimed at appropriating the language of the social and of people and nation from the socialists. The social democrats were not uninterested in the idea of Volkhemet, but wanted to give the home of the people a different design. A 30 years discursive struggle about giving meaning to the concept of the people followed until the social democrats in the 1930s took over the priority of interpretation and maintained it for half a century. This is a case in point for what nation building in 19th century was about, uh, at least in Europe and at least since the 1870s, a conflict between conservatives and socialists about the means to achieve national integration, which in the long run molded together the nation. National identities in the mass societies of the 19th century emerged much more through political conflict about the social and the search for political compromises than through warfare and symbol production. It was not by chance that these developments speeded up in the 1870s when liberalism faced a lengthy crisis and lost credibility. In 1873, a speculation bubble triggered what until the 1930s was called the Great Depression, with bankruptcies and unemployment. The outgrown crisis of liberalism and the ever louder voices all over Europe for state interventions in the economies resulted in the emergence of a liberalism with a social profile. Laissez-faire lost ground, the new liberalism in Britain in 1906 and social liberalism in Scandinavia are two evidences of this development. Another special form of social integration which combined mobilization of the working class for national purposes with exploitation and violence in the colonies was social imperialism from the imperialism from the 1880s until 1914. The social trend culminated in 1914 when the outbreak of World War I activated the states for reinforced resource mobilization. Social integration was important for supportive home fronts. The state leaders were successful. The rhetoric of international working class solidarity disappeared when the social democrats in almost all European countries rallied behind their governments in support of national warfare efforts. Socialism was nationalized. The, the war meant massive expansion of the tasks of the state also in the social area. Experiences on how the state apparatus could be used for regulation of economies and the social services were accumulated and a new basis for thinking the welfare state was based, was laid. 
on this basis of experiences and on the additional experiences of version 2 of the Great Depression and of uh, World War II, the 1950s saw the breakthrough of the nation-states in their modern meaning as national communities of destiny, building on feelings of social solidarity. Government control of income distribution through income taxes and guarantee of social standards. Bismarck's imposition of the social state had been top-down. Now it changed to bottom-up struggles for more equality. The two world wars and the economic crisis between them had increased the consciousness for social peace. Here one must add that this was the West European development in the framework of the Cold War. The potential for radical protests, in particular in France and Italy, and the threat of the Soviet Union, triggered welfare politics to stabilize the Western democracies. This was the framework of beverage plan, Scandinavian social democratic welfare, and the German social market economy. This was the situation when Europe entered the stage as a political actor. Not only the experiences of the collapse of world capitalism in the 1930s, but also the experiences of fascism and communism provided the interpretive framework of the time at, of the foundation of the European Coal and Steel Community uh, in 1951. Out of bitter experiences, after 1945, Europe's Christian Democrats knew how the role rule of the people could be abused. Democracy had brought fascism and nazism to power. At the time of the Berlin blockade and the Korean War, the Moscow-controlled communist parties in France and Italy had the support of some 25-30% of the electorate. So the construction of the European coal and steel community Robert Schumann, Konrad Adenauer and Alcide de Gasperi thought that they could create an order where the executive power was protected from populist attacks and unreliable voters, constructed more robustly than the League of Nations had been. They were keen to avoid a new Weimar scenario. The framework was the Cold War and communism was the big threat to these leaders. The primary aim was never to create a democratic organization of political belonging but to establish a system of protection that would make their nation-states safe for democracy. The language to describe the new institutional setting is indicated with the high authority, which later became the Commission, as the body of centralized power. There was a long-term dream of development towards a federal Europe and as, as an undercurrent of the pragmatic construction of the European coal and steel community. Such dreams were promoted by memories of the war. The resistance movement had imagined a federal Europe as their post-war goal. However, this federal dream only functioned like the revolution in the socialist reform agendas as a long-term distant dynamic promoting imagery. There was at the outset uh, in the 1950s no understanding of the EU, or the EC, as it was called at the time, as a democracy. On the contrary, 
The task of European integration was to make the member states safe for democracy in a time when 25% of the electorates in Italy and France voted communist. And the experiences of the Weimar Republic were still in fresh memory. Democracy was to be safeguarded at the level of the member states, not at the European level. A historical process Alan Milward rightly called the European rescue of the nation states. The crucial question then is when and how the idea of a democratic Europe and a European identity emerged. The nation-states became welfare states under demarcation to Eastern Europe. There was no talk about the national identity since the identification with the welfare-providing nation-states was self-evident. The language of national identity emerged when in the 1970s and 1980s the stability of the national welfare states eroded. The title of Anthony Smith's book in 1971 was Theories of Nationalism. His books in 1987 and 1991 were titled The Ethnic Origins of Nations and National Identity respectively. I argue that this move of the titles reflected the emergence of a new problem, which had, with the collapse of the economic international order created after World War II in the early <coughs> 1970s, to do. The erosion of the welfare provisions provoked an identity crisis all over Western Europe, an identity crisis which brought the concept of identity on the political and academic agendas. Previously, nobody had talked about identity. The class was not understood in terms of identity, but in terms of consciousness, for instance. The nation was not in the understood in terms of uh, identity, but in terms of community. The collapse of the Bretton Woods order, triggered by the dollar crash in 1971, the oil price shock in 1973, and the Vietnam War. The three events were connected, of course provoked paralysis and feelings of crisis in Europe. The EC summit in Copenhagen in December 1973 failed to agree on anything. In this situation, the idea of a European identity came in as a face-saving tool. The declaration on a European identity was an escape forward, nothing more and nothing less. The Declaration on a European Identity departed from the principle of the unity of the nine. This was just after the first enlargement. On their responsibility towards the rest of the world and on the dynamic nature of the European construction. The meaning of responsibility towards the rest of the world uh, was expressed in a hierarchical way. First, it meant responsibility towards the other nations of Europe with whom friendly relations and cooperation already existed. Secondly, it meant responsibility towards the countries of the Mediterranean, Africa and the Middle East. Thirdly, it referred to the relations with the USA based on the restricted foundations of equality and the spirit of friendship. Next in the hierarchy was the narrow cooperation and constructive dialogue with Japan and Canada. Then came detente towards the Soviet Union and the countries of Eastern Europe. 
At the bottom of the list came China, Latin America, and finally a reference was made to the importance of the struggle against underdevelopment in general. The fact that the USA was mentioned after the Middle East must be understood in the framework of the prevailing oil price shock and the fact that President Nixon since 1971 refused to let the dollar guarantee the Bretton Woods order. The 1970s were gloomy with mass unemployment and loss of confidence in the capacity of the ever more debt-burdened states to manage the economies. In the 1980s emerged a neoliberal language which outlined new horizons of expectations around the market concept, instead of the delegitimized welfare states which did not function anymore as they used to. European imaginations of further integration and economic growth were in the 1980s connected to this emerging neoliberal market language, especially through Jacques Delors' internal market project. The idea of a European democracy, implicit in the notion of a European identity and democratic deficit, was now transferred into a new semantic field around the market concept. The market would more or less automatically lead to a European democracy with European citizens, then another new term, as its carriers. The straight line from market to democracy was the idea which after the implosion of the Soviet Empire was to be told to the East European populations. The lost credibility in the state capacity was substituted by new confidence in the market capacity. The market economy would provide uh, democracy where totalitarianism had ruled. More precisely, it was Altiero Spinelli's Crocodile Club, named after a restaurant in Brussels and lobbying for a tighter European integration, which infused new life in the identity concept by canalizing it in new directions. Spinelli's draft treaty for a European Union from February 1984 asserted that the citizens of the member states should ipso facto be citizens of the Union. Citizenship of the Union would be dependent on citizenship of a member state. National law was to be coordinated with a view of constituting a homogeneous judicial area. To achieve this objective, measures were to be taken to reinforce the feelings of individual citizens that they were citizens of the Union. With the introduction of the European citizenship, European identity was back on the table again, but in a new setting filled with expectations in the market. Gaston Thorne, president of the Commission, commented on the Spinelli proposal, emphasizing the need to equate the European integration with ordinary Europeans. I quote, we have put in place measures which will make the citizens, and particularly the young, understand Europe, identify themselves with it, and support it. Some simple measures with a strong symbolic content must be quickly taken." End of quotation. François Mitterrand welcomed enthusiastically Spinelli's and the Parliament's draft treaty. At the conclusion of the European Council meeting in Fontainebleau, uh, Fontainebleau in June 84, 
He stated that it was, and I quote, essential that the community responds to the expectations of the people of Europe, people of Europe in singular, by adopting measures to strengthen and promote its identity. Um, an ad hoc, committee, ad hoc committee, fittingly named the People's Europe, was set up to look into ways of engaging the public symbolically with Europe and delivered its report in June 1985. The report dealt with important aspects of special rights of citizens, of education, culture and communication, exchanges and the image of, and identity of the community, which would make, I quote, a substantial contribution to the realization of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. The suggestions included community model driving license, a Euro lottery, 9 May as Europe Day, a community joint study program exchange, European sport teams, a European flag, anthem and emblem in order to give the individual citizen, I quote, a clearer perception of the dimension and existence of the community. The European identity became a matter of branding. The aims of the Committee on the People's Europe fitted in very well with the internal market agenda of the new President Jacques Delors. With the rekindling of the identity discourse in 1984-85, the connotations to a social Europe was cut. The new association was with a citizen concept which somehow without closer analysis was linked to ideas of a European democracy were connected with symbol production and the democratic peoples were envisaged in terms of free individuals on a market rather than tied to each other through social bonds still mainly organized on national levels. In the new argumentative chain, the market-based civil society promoted citizens who became the constituents of an emerging European democracy and identity transcending the nation through transnational attachment to Europe. The first blow to the democracy and identity through market imagery came in 2005 when the electorates in France and the Netherlands turned down the proposal for a European constitution. The link to the enlargement of the EU with the nine mem new members from the former communist East European bloc was obvious. The political elites had not been particularly concerned about the increasing social differences within the Union through the enlargement, but had invested their hopes in an automatically equalizing force of the market. The voters in France and the Netherlands did not believe in these automatics. The election campaign in France was driven by the posters of a Polish plumber taking the jobs away from the French workers by selling his cheap labor on a new integrated European labor market. The collapse of the financial markets in 2008 added on a south-north dimension to the remaining east-west division of Europe. The paradox is that the Bicentenary debate about the social issue in Europe silenced at the same time as the social differences and unemployment within the nation and Europe grew. The result, we know, a growing contempt for EU and a renationalization of Europe with increasing nationalism. 
but not like earlier building on social integration with an inclusive focus, but an aggressive and exclusive nationalism. There are two enemies in the new nationalist language, uh, Brussels and cheap labor from within and without Europe. This is a different kind of identity formation, reminding of the 1930s. The idea of a federal Europe with a European identity is a dream of yesterday, a dream of the Cold War, where the new aggressive nationalism will take Europe is unclear. I came, come to my final words. One of the most viable instruments for identity construction used to be the translation of experiences into horizons of expectation. The outlining of expectations and a growing gap between experiences and expectations was the view, in the view of German historical philosopher Reinhard Koselleck, the motor of modernity. The capacity to discern a past that had been different, that is worse, and a future that could be made different, that is better, through human agency, provoked the dynamics of modernity. However, Koselleck noted that this was not necessarily a perpetual movement. The realization of political outlines like republicanism, democracy or liberalism will transform the old expectations into new experiences, but these two categories are not identical, he argued. There is no guarantee that the expectations come about as they were designed. As a matter of fact, they seldom do so. The hopes invested in the expectations might become experiences of disappointment, for instance. This will probably at some point in future be true also for the, the expectations invested in socialism and also for communism, Koselleck prognosticated in the mid-1970s, when the influence of 1968 radicalism was still strong. He did not imagine that a new kind of liberalism would come back on the experiences of the fall of communism, and that around 2010 the expectations that drove the establishment of neoliberalism in 1990s would result in new experiences of disappointment, but so far no new big expectation. The bigger the experiences of failed realization of political utopias, the varier and more open the expectations, and at some future point, no more expectations. Koselleck indicated here the possibility of the end of modernity, in the sense of belief in optimizing progress. This was quite 